Time now for Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070. As always, joining us is Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, good morning. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, Good to be here. Some interesting stories to talk about today, including that thorny issue of civil forfeiture and where the balance should be struck between the ability of a person to have control over their private property and the ability of the state to seize that property, if indeed the circumstances merit it as just. Yeah, this is, I think, an important case, and it's a substantial case in B.C. The decision that came out this week relates back to the uh, case that I'm sure listeners are uh, familiar with. It's that uh, case where the uh, Attorney General last year came out and said that he was, quote, incredibly disappointed by charges being stayed with respect to uh, allegations of BC's largest money laundering uh, allegation ever. And the basics of that were that there was a uh, outfit, storefront outfit uh, over in, I think it was Richmond, uh-huh. uh, and the allegation was that uh, this uh, outfit would, the Silver International, the name it went by, would facilitate uh, money laundering by providing uh, funds to high rolling Chinese gamblers, basically. Uh, and they would uh, combine money laundering uh, with uh, uh, circumventing China's currency export uh, requirements. And the way that would work is somebody would want to come here who was a rich gambler. They couldn't take enough money out of China in their private plane or whatever they were coming on. Uh, and uh, this outfit was alleged to have taken uh, cash that would presumably be from some unlawful source. They would provide large amounts of cash, it was alleged sort of a million and a half dollars a day, to prospective high-rolling gamblers, so they get their cash to go into the casino. They would go into the BC casinos and by and large lose it in the casino. They weren't like cashing it out to turn it into a check. They would do as most gamblers would and lose it in the casino. Uh, And then the uh, high-rolling gambler would repay the organization by a bank transfer in China. So the organization would then allegedly launder the money by turning piles of cash, presumably with white powder on them, into a bank deposit in China. The high-roller gets their money to gamble at the casino. BC gets the money, but uh, that was viewed, obviously, as not being desirable, given that it was facilitating, allegedly, money laundering. I was going to say, it's the, the gambling of the money is not the issue. It's getting those dollar bills to the high-roller in the first place, and the activities it must be engaged in, the, the white powder, perhaps, involving activities yeah. that causes the real harm to the public. A- yes. And it's also, it's an offense, actually, to be in possession of proceeds of crime. You're not oh, permitted really? to just say, sure, give me your bag of drug money. I'll uh, happily change it into... <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know that was its yeah. own offense. That's, That's good its own know. offense. Can't right. do that. So if you're offered the bag of money, don't take it. All right. In any case, those charges against uh, individuals uh, were stayed or dropped uh, last year, producing the Attorney General coming out saying how incredibly disappointed he was by that turn of events. It would appear, in retrospect, that that may have occurred as a result of the charges being dropped, as a result of inadvertently identifying police informants in the case, and they had to drop the proceedings to avoid identifying these people and presumably putting them in grave danger. Was there a disclosure error? I can't remember if that was this case. That's what it appears to have been, sort of a whoops, we uh, accidentally uh, sent out uh, information about who the informants were, uh, stopped the proceedings. It's like the reply-all joke at the office where you send the email to everybody, but that's not what happened, but that sort of horrible, oh no, we disclosed the wrong thing to the wrong side. Okay. So the criminal charges get dropped, the Attorney General is incredibly disappointed, then counsel for the individuals who were charged made an application uh, for the return of 
uh, a bunch of things which had been seized as part of that criminal investigation of the proceeds of crime. Those things included $2 million in cash, some casino chips, uh, a property in Richmond, which we made some fun of, I think, at the time on the radio, given its rather tasteless, although obviously expensive appearance. I recall that. It was very ornate and distinguished. Yeah, it was a very distinguished. I think it had columns, maybe a lot of gold leaf on it. It, it was the sort of, uh, you know, it, <laughs> perhaps just the picture itself might suggest that was it was the central casting of version of the house that you want to check. Yeah. 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 All right. So it involved these various things. When the charges were stayed or dropped, counsel for the accused uh, made an application for the return of the things that had been seized as part of that investigation. Uh, And a judge ordered those things returned pursuant to a provision of the criminal code that allows for an order for things to be given back when the proceedings aren't going on anymore. So that was asked for and the order was made. The Attorney General then comes out and makes these statements about being incredibly disappointed and needing better coordination with the federal government and prosecutions. It's all a terrible tragedy. Then what happens? That brings us to the case this week. So... About two or three weeks go by, and when one of those orders is made for the return of property, there's a 30-day waiting period before it becomes effective. That allows for an appeal, right? Yeah, that makes sense. But rather than appealing the order under the criminal code that the money and other stuff be given back, what the provincial government does uh, in the form of the Director of Civil Forfeiture is that they show up in court in Victoria on December the 20th, uh, pursuant to uh, the civil forfeiture act a provincial act uh, which allows for the province to uh, on a civil basis try to seize property that they believe to be the proceeds of crime uh, or property which would be sort of involved in criminal activity right now that civil forfeiture act um, is one which uh, is different from the criminal code for a number of reasons First of all, you need not be convicted of anything. Second of all, it's a civil thing. So the standard would be probably, was this stuff the proceeds of crime or property used in an offense? Rather so is that than, balance of probabilities? Yeah, is that the term? That's so right. So it's where you, the judge is presented with the two scenarios and prefers which one is more likely? Yeah, that's okay. right. Okay. And moreover, they've even now reversed the burden. So you would have to prove that the stuff the government wants to take is not the proceeds of crime. Hmm. Uh, so... there would be some reason to uh, argue that that act may be unfair. (laughs) That's how it operates, right? Sort of uh, causing uh, somebody to have to prove that their property was not the proceeds of crime in order to get to keep it. But nonetheless, that's the law in British Columbia. So what happens on December 20th? Well, a lawyer for the Director of Civil Forfeiture, now that's the Director of Civil Forfeiture is an employee of the provincial government, Mm -hmm shows up in court in Victoria, having filed an application the day before, and on what's called an ex parte basis, makes an application to keep all of this stuff, the money and other things, which a judge a few weeks earlier had ordered returned. Now, here's how things started to go off the rails in this case, and as was illuminated in the decision which came out this week. When in a civil case, just like in a criminal case, I suppose, there would be a strong presumption that uh, if you're going to be suing somebody or going to court asking for some order, that the other party be given notice of it. You tell them. Uh, And so that permits a number of things which would sort of go to broad fairness, like allowing that person or their lawyer to show up in court and argue why you shouldn't get what you're asking for, right? That's generally how it works. We have an adversarial system which relies upon both people being told about what's being asked for, and so they could come to court and argue why it should or shouldn't happen. But here, 
the lawyer for the director of civil forfeiture chose not to do that, uh, didn't, um, and showed up in court in Victoria to make what one of these things called an ex parte application. That, and that is just say, means out of one side, right? Or out yeah, of one party. It's like, I haven't yeah. even told the other side this is happening. It's the lawyer going in front of a judge saying, look, I'm just here asking for something, and I haven't even told the other side about it, and they're not here. So that's what the lawyer for the director of civil forfeiture chose to do. Uh, and the law on that is clear in this respect. And this, I think, goes to sort of the broader issue of the obligations of a lawyer. Lawyers aren't simply an advocate. You can't just sort of go and do anything you might possibly do to sort of advantage your client. And when a lawyer is showing up on one of these ex parte applications, this is the language used. The duty on counsel in an ex parte application is weighty indeed. The law is clear that an applicant must make full, frank, and fair disclosure of facts known to them that would support the position of the other side. You've got to present the whole thing. You can't show up on an application where you haven't even told the other side about it and just act like an advocate only telling the judge things you think will help your side. You've got to show up and you've got to provide the whole picture to the judge because after all, you've sort of subverted the basic starting point, which would be tell the other person what you're doing so they can come and argue against it. An adversarial system without an adversary. Yeah, not much of a system. Yeah. So there's this very high burden on counsel to do that. You've got to tell the judge about the other side's possible arguments, things that might be an issue. And when you read the decision that came out on December 20th, you can see that the judge hearing that, which was a different judge from the one who ordered the stuff be given back, the money, was very concerned about that. So why you can see in the reasons, concerned about why the other side wasn't told and, uh, you know, those basic requirements. And here's where things went really off the rails, uh, as elucidated by the decision which just came out this week from Associate Chief Justice Holmes, uh, which dealt with the director of civil forfeiture showing up and asking that this interim order continue, right? Because the interim order that they got without telling the other side didn't go on forever. Uh, and when they showed up, the director of civil forfeiture showed up asking that this thing carry on and they get to keep the money, basically. Yeah. Um, they then got a transcript of what the lawyer said back in that application on December 20th. Um, and the judge that had to deal with the matter this week... Um, found that, and this is the important part, This essentially this. In essence, the director's counsel conducted herself as an advocate for the director's position in responding to Johnson J., the judge who heard that thing December 20th, concerns about having the hearing take place ex parte and in the face of the Section 490 order, the other one the judge had made to give the stuff back, said that the lawyer allowed no room for opposing views, uh, views of the law or its application to the situation, made no apparent effort to put forward the position of the opposing counsel would likely have taken had they been present. And she also misstated the law on one foundational point in a way that favored the director's position. Ooh, now, good. you know, uh, courts aren't and judges aren't known for making uh, sort of over-the-top inflammatory language, but that's about as strong as you're going to see uh, from a judge sort of criticizing counsel for how they've conducted the application. Uh, and the reason why I think this is important for people is the judge goes on to make clear that her criticism isn't simply with respect to the particular lawyer who showed up making that application to keep the stuff without telling the other side. The judge uh, made clear that uh, her concern was that it included the fact that the director's response to the application, like the hearing that took place most recently about whether that should go on, uh, indicated uh, or suggested to her uh, that it did not inspire confidence that a different approach would be taken in the future. 
uh, and the uh, with respect to misstatements on the law, the way the council conducted themselves, and the judge found that uh, whether the sort of the original lawyer showing up there in December, the misstatements were a result of carelessness or confusion on council's part or whatever it might be, it was particularly troubling that the director of civil forfeiture continued to uh, not acknowledge the serious problem uh, caused when somebody shows up and acts in that fashion, sort of as a pure advocate, not uh, providing a uh, clear statement of the other side, doing it without telling the other side. And the judge found that the uh, conduct of the civil uh, director of civil forfeiture uh, must be taken very seriously. Misleading statements on an ex parte hearing undermine the integrity of the process and may even obliterate it. Um, indicated the judge found that misleading statements are of greater concern when they are made on behalf of a state actor carrying public authority and trust. Interesting. So it was a round condemnation of how the director of civil forfeiture uh, conducted himself in December and the fact that they didn't acknowledge how problematic behaving in that way is and how that can undermine uh, confidence in the system uh, generally. The result of all this is that the uh, Associate Chief Justice Holmes refused the director's application to continue to keep the money. The net result of this is going to be the $2 million in cash is going to go back uh, to the uh, people alleged to have been running that money laundering operation. Uh, and the not unreasonable concern that the director expressed was, well, we're not likely to ever see that again. It's likely to disappear into the ether. And that may well be so. Uh, but the takeaway message here, and it's an important takeaway message, um, is that uh, when counsel are acting on behalf particularly of a government entity that's doing something like this, trying to take somebody's property, you have to take very seriously sort of the, your obligations as counsel uh, to ensure the integrity of the process. And that means you can't simply conduct yourself as an advocate. It's not enough to show up and say anything you think might help your side when you're not when you're not telling the other side about your application in particular, there needs to be full, frank, and complete disclosure. And the really troubling thing here, uh, based on the findings of the judge, is that the director of civil forfeiture still doesn't seem to acknowledge how problematic that behavior was uh, back in December, and it causes the judge great concern that that kind of behavior may not change in the future. So. That's a, a round condemnation about how that uh, office is conducting itself. And from a public point of view, the net result of this now is not only were the criminal allegations stayed as a result of a, uh, appears to be of mistakenly identifying the informant, now the $2 million in cash is going to be returned to the uh, people who are alleged to have uh, engaged in that. And that has happened because of how the director of civil forfeiture uh, chose to conduct its business in this case. Not a great day for the B.C. government. Quick break. After the break, Court of Appeal of British Columbia and the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Son had the ruling recently, a partial appeal allowed. What does it mean and what happens next? We'll talk about it after this. You made iHeartRadio Canada's number one app for radio and podcasts. Now, your free music app is adding Artist Radio. Type in your favorite artist in the search bar and instantly create a radio station of your favorite artists and their peers. Don't like a song? Skip it. There's an Artist Radio station for whatever mood or occasion. Download the iHeartRadio app free and access over 1,000 radio stations, the biggest podcast library on the planet. And now, you get to create your own music feed with Artist Radio. More information on iHeartRadio.ca. What's that 649 feeling? It's your chance to win an estimated $9 million. 
It's playing as a group with your friends. It's picking your numbers and then holding your breath. And it's knowing there's a guaranteed $1 million prize with every draw. The next Lotto 649 jackpot is an estimated $9 million. Plus the guaranteed $1 million prize. There's no better feeling than that. Get that 649 feeling. 19 plus to play. If you gamble, use your game sense. Thanks for calling 1-800-GOT-JUNK. This is Sarah. How can I help? Can you help me with spring cleaning, even if it's not springtime? Sure, we can do that. We bring the springtime with us. Are you willing to come after dark? We work until midnight, seven days a week. How much lead time do I need to give you? We can be there in 90 minutes. <laughs> you can't imagine how happy this is going to make my wife. It makes us happy, too. Happy, happy! Happy, happy! When you want to give happiness, call 1-800-GOT-JUNK. Or visit 1-800-GOT-JUNK.COM. Happy, happy! If you want a custom IKEA kitchen, you could order everything you need. Take a trip on the ferry to pick it up. Measure, cut, and install. Take a step back to check out your handiwork. Curse, then remeasure, recut, and reinstall. Or you could just call Easy Installations. Easy Installations designs and installs custom IKEA kitchens for less. Visit their kitchen showroom at 3318 Oak Street. an alarm set your clocks set 20 clocks be the first one there for the hyundai factory authorized clear out because good things happen to those who don't wait get a great clear out deal on a 2019 hyundai with up to four thousand dollars in price adjustments on select models or choose zero percent lease or finance rates on other select models don't miss the hyundai factory authorized 2019 clear out but hurry because once they're gone they're gone visit hyundaicanada.com or your dealer for details how is your financial advisor paid? What are your total fees? And what services do you get for the costs you are paying? Here's Robin Muir from Hatch & Muir. At Hatch & Muir, we provide complete transparency of the costs and services we provide to ensure our clients have total clarity in our working relationship. Give us a call for a complimentary fee audit on your portfolio and get further information on our unique value proposition. Let us help you get clarity on your financial affairs. More info at HatchMuir.com. Hatch & Muir, we can help you. Bob's a hard-working businessman. Would you mind showing me your socks? Abby Shola is a no-nonsense nurse. People call you Abby? No, go back in there and wash your hands. Are they the perfect match? I thought there'd be more weirdos. Not even close. You are the weirdo. CTV this fall from executive producer Chuck Lorre. A comedy about finding love. So where are you from? Nigeria. Where you least expect it. That's a heck of a commute, huh? <laughs> Get into the series premiere of Bob Hart's Abby Shola. Monday at 8.30, only on CTV. Hit the App Store and download the new enhanced iHeartRadio. I was just listening, actually, on my, on my iPhone. And listen to CFAX 1070 everywhere you go. It's Adam Sterling on CFAX 1070. You know, the nice thing about the horrible pipeline war that never ends is I get to learn all about Canada's legal system. For example, the Federal Court of Canada. We learned about that when discussing the litigation between Alberta and British Columbia. I didn't even know that level of court existed. I knew there was a Federal <laughs> Court of Appeal above it. Uh, now the B.C. Court of Appeal, a different court yet again, making a ruling, a partial appeal allowed regarding an environmental assessment certificate given by the province in relation to the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Michael Mulligan, help us understand what's happening here. Sure, this, this one sure does need a little bit of explanation. So this was a Court of Appeal decision which just came out um, and it was an appeal brought by the Squamish Nation and others 
uh, challenging the issuance of an environmental assessment certificate uh, pursuant to the Environmental Assessment Act, which is a provincial act in British Columbia. Um, now, if you look at the Environmental Assessment Act in BC, it would contemplate a requirement for various large, large projects like this pipeline uh, being a requirement. Uh, and it is uh, something which ultimately would be a certificate issued by the British Columbia Minister of Environment and Minister of Natural Gas. So this was a challenge brought saying, hey, you shouldn't have issued that certificate. And furthermore, the Squamish Nation says you didn't consult with us sufficiently before deciding to issue the certificate. Hmm. Now, here's the uh, uh, point that kind of makes uh, this uh, ruling uh, a little a bit of a head scratcher. The provincial government, we should remember, has no authority to regulate the construction or operation of an interprovincial pipeline. And this was a point where all the parties to this litigation agreed. The court said this, the parties accept that British Columbia cannot prevent or impede construction or operation of the pipeline. Now, what's really gone on here is that the province of British Columbia uh, has passed this act, the Environmental Assessment Act, uh, that requires one of these certificates to be issued, and it would be issued on the basis of the minister reviewing a report prepared by the federal agency, the National Energy Board uh, report on it. Now, the provincial government did consultation with the Squamish Nation and others about the issuance of the certificate, but the thing is, they're required to issue the certificate. And even if the certificate wasn't issued, it can have no practical impact whatsoever because the province of British Columbia has no authority to impede the construction of the pipeline or its operation. So while we have a legal regime in place that contemplates the minister having to issue one of these certificates, the certificate or absence of a certificate can't really impede the operation of this or construction of this pipeline, well, really at all. So I'm hard-pressed to imagine quite what that consultation or accommodation might look like, uh, given that the, you know, we can't do anything about it. But nonetheless, it's a legal requirement that this thing be produced and there be consultation uh, before it be produced. And so hence this litigation that now wound its way up to the Court of Appeal. Interestingly, the Court of Appeal at the end of the day found that the consultation was adequate. Although... Which is interesting because that stopped Northern <laughs> Gateway, that stopped Trans Mountain on August yeah. 30th, 2018. So that was fulfilled in this case. True, but okay. I can't, it's really hard again for me to imagine quite what that accommodation and consultation looks like when ultimately the person who's negotiating and consulting with you and accommodating you really has no control over the thing at the end of the day anyways because it's just out of their constitutional jurisdiction. But there we are. The uh, Nonetheless, the Court of Appeal found that the consultation was adequate. Uh, that may have some bearing on what the Federal Court of Appeal uh, does uh, now when it's examining the consultation that occurred over the past year. Uh, but through no fault of anyone, as the Court finds, the uh, minister uh, who was required to issue this certificate must review the uh, new report uh, that was prepared uh, by the National Energy Board following that last appeal up to the Federal Court of Appeal and then must issue the certificate again. That's just all various requirements of this provincial act, so presumably they will do so. Uh, but once again, it seems to me, on a, when you carefully consider all of this, it's a requirement to issue a certificate that really can have no impact whatsoever. If the minister didn't issue the certificate, it seems to me, what difference can that make? Your level of government has no control over this. Uh, but uh, there it is. So now, presumably, the Minister of Environment and Minister of Natural Gas Development will review 
as they are required to under the Act. The new and updated uh, environmental assessment report Will prepared by the issued. National Energy Board yeah. and shall issue that certificate <laughs> because all of that, of course, is a requirement of the Provincial Environmental Assessment Act, uh, but it's all uh, so much uh, legal requirement without uh, much impact uh, because the province just doesn't have control over this. It's been 15 years since Haida, and we're still working out that template on what the constitutional duty to consult and accommodate Aboriginal peoples really means. <laughs> yeah, I, I, we're getting there. We're, but, we're getting there, but yeah. once again, I'm, again, I don't know what that accommodation looks like when you're uh, consulting and accommodating yet have no authority to do anything. It's sort of like the some municipality uh, setting up some bylaw whereby they must issue some certificate to approve the pipeline. That's all very interesting, uh, but uh, it's just not their uh, it's just not their uh, area. Burnaby tried to do that with their tree cutting permit, denying right. it. The <laughs> provincial government became an intervener in that case. They got crushed. Kinderborgen got cost. So that's how that trial ended or that case ended. Michael Mulligan, pleasure as always. We have eighty seconds left. Yeah, I know you've got some other stories here. Would you like to reflect on the stories sure. we've uh, done or, or talk about the new one? I think I can probably sum that up in 80 seconds. Okay. So this was a, another decision out of the uh, B.C. Court of Appeal this week. The underlying issue was a fellow trying to appeal his uh, long-since-past conviction for sexual assault that arose out of uh, some activity with a person who was 14 years of age, and the issue was whether that person had said that she was 14 or not. That's the underlying issue. The appeal this week dealt with this fellow's effort to try to get a copy of this person's alleged youth court record, the young person. Mm. And he says that that would have had some impact on the original trial uh, because it might have gone to that person's credibility. His problem was that he did that trial on his own. He didn't have a lawyer. Oh, no. There has to be an application made to unseal a youth court record and get that thing. He didn't have a lawyer. He didn't know he had to make that application. He didn't get the record. <laughs> Uh, and he was convicted by a jury a number of years ago, and he's ever since then been struggling to try to get this thing and have a new trial. Uh, he hasn't gotten very far. The Court of Appeal finally concluded uh, that there is no jurisdiction to underseal, unseal the youth court record on an appeal. That had to have been done way back at the time of trial. The uh, takeaway from all of this is don't try to conduct your own jury trial, if at all possible. That's not going to go well for you. Uh, and uh, trying to unscramble the egg afterwards is likely to be a multi-year effort and frustration, as it will be, as it has been now for this fellow. Um, we'll never know what the result might have been had the application have been made prior to the trial, but uh, there it is. Michael Mulligan, thank you for your knowledge and insight as always. Appreciate it. Thank you. Michael Mulligan, every Thursday here at CFAX 1070, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers.